Hey, greetings everyone. Lots to do today, so let's get cracking, and I need you to turn with me to the second half of Acts chapter 19, if you would be so kind. And if you're just tuning in for the first week, we're, we're thankful you're here. Don't, don't move the dial, and we appreciate you virtually joining us at the street as we're going through the book of Acts. And I think you'll be glad you came today, because for the last little while, we've been visiting some of the great cities of the ancient Mediterranean world. And even though the story that we're going to read today takes place more than 1900 years ago, a lot of these places feel really familiar. And a lot of the characters in the book of Acts are asking the same kind of questions that you and I ask and struggling with the same kind of issues we have as we negotiate life in a mixed up and in a fallen world. Now, last time we were together, we visited New York City. <laughs> Actually, it was the city of Ephesus on the western shores of Asia Minor, but it's often been compared to the Big Apple because it's a vibrant place. It's a provincial capital with lots of commercial activity and a host of competing interest groups. And by way of background, here's a couple of fun facts about the city of Ephesus to keep in mind as we proceed today. First, the centerpiece of this city was a famous shrine, shrine of the goddess Artemis. She's known as Diana to the Romans, and her image allegedly fell from heaven and is therefore venerated by the Ephesians in a temple that happens to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So that's the first thing. Second, there's a massive stadium in Ephesus built into one of the mountainsides, and it's a stadium that could seat up to 24,000 spectators. Both of these impressive sites, the Temple of Diana and the gigantic arena, both need to be kept in mind throughout our study for the rest of Acts chapter 19, because they're both going to loom large and cast their shadow over the activities of the Apostle Paul and some of the early believers in the city of Ephesus, where last time we saw surprising and considerable success. We finished off with chapter 19, lines 9 and 10, where we learned that Paul hosted daily discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that the entire Jewish community and all those Greeks who lived in the province of Asia, they all heard the word of the Lord. We were reminded that the context of discussion can open all kinds of doors. And if you're engaged in honest dialogue, with someone who's searching or interested in learning about the character of God, you can listen and you can also have the opportunity to share your testimony about who God is, about how your sins have been forgiven, and how you've experienced new and abundant life. This prompted us to wonder, can we be the kind of church, can we be the kind of church that's known for discussion, for addressing topics that people are interested in and frankly not sure about? I mean. They might not get the easiest answers that they want very quickly in the right way, but they can be guaranteed that they'll be treated with dignity and with respect when they come and when they visit with us. Well, I can imagine that all kinds of questions were welcomed at the lecture hall of Tyrannus, and it was effective because the good news went viral, and a remarkable percentage of people in this influential city of a quarter million souls or more heard a message about relationship with God the God who spoke the universe into existence. Now then, let's proceed, shall we, to the next installment in chapter 19. 
because it's not just intellectual arguments and reasonable discussion that unfolds as the story continues in Ephesus. On the contrary, there's going to be fraudsters and lying and healing and book burning and probably most gripping of all, today we're going to read about a riot, a riot that takes place in the provincial capital and one that threatens to spin dangerously out of control. But don't be afraid, because in the midst of this tumult, we're also going to discover something important about city life. See, Acts 19 is going to teach us that cities can be dangerous and complex places with different levels of conflict, including, we'll see, even spiritual battlegrounds. But this, folks, is a battle that we can win. So listen, will you, to verses 11 to 16, Acts chapter 19, because after the two-year period of discussions that Paul hosts in the lecture hall, we also learn the following. Verse 11, we learn that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Well, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. But one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus, I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered all of them. He gave them such a beating that all of them had to run out of the house naked and bleeding. Again, if you're just joining us, well, FYI, there have been a few weird things in the book of Acts so far. For instance, back in chapter 8, the story shifted from Jerusalem to the region of Samaria, up in the north, where we met one of the local celebrities, a guy named Simon the Magician. Have you ever met someone who is a, a self-promoter, even of the shameless variety? Well, that's Simon for you. He boasted, in fact, that he was someone great. But when Philip the Evangelist ventured into Samaritan territory, this is the story that we studied in Acts chapter 8, Simon heard the gospel. He believed, and he was baptized, and he followed Philip around everywhere, astonished by the great signs and the miracles that he saw. In fact, we're told that with shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed were healed, and there was great joy in that city. You know, I remember last year when we studied this passage in Acts chapter 8, it was around the very same time that Kanye released his gospel album, so we had occasion to talk about the matter of celebrity conversions, and since Simon's uh, certainly a celebrity of sorts in the city of Samaria. And BTW, you know what? Sources within my household told me that recently Snoop Dogg has likewise released a gospel album. I think we'll leave that for another day and stick with Acts chapter 8, because as it turns out, what we saw is that Simon had a bit of a controversy. You see, when the apostles John and Peter later visit Samaria, and Simon saw that the Holy Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. May your money perish with you, Peter rebuked. You need to repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. 
For I see, Peter says, that you're full of bitterness and captive to sin. And then Simon answered, pray the Lord for me, pray to the Lord for me, so that nothing that you have said might happen to me. And that's how the episode, in Acts chapter 8, concludes. On this open-ended note, and we really don't know what Simon, the celebrity, decided. Was he going to make a decisive break with his dubious past, or was he going to continue with his old habits and his default pattern of self-centered behavior? We do not know. That was a, sh- a strange and a shocking story, but even weir- weirder than Simon and even weirder than any celebrity conversion is this account right here that we just read of Sceva and his seven sons in Acts chapter 19 in the city of Ephesus. You know, the name Sceva seems to mean something like favorable omen or mind reader. Sounds like the amazing Kreskin, this guy who used to come through my hometown of Kelowna every year. You're kind of desperate, frankly, if you're coming through Kelowna. But anyway, like Simon back in Acts chapter 8, Skeva and his entourage think they can manipulate or game the system. They think they can take a shortcut to gain power while circumventing the price of humble submission to God, to whom all power ultimately belongs. Hey, have you ever suspected that somebody, maybe somebody trying to sell you something, or have you ever suspected that someone's a bit sketchy? What do you do? You probably look for a clue, you know, some sort of giveaway. Imagine for a moment that you're about to embark, let's say randomly, uh, you're about to embark on a Caribbean cruise. Mm. So you're standing on the dock in Miami, you've got your backpack, and you've got your caboodle, when all of a sudden, a limousine pulls up and out pops this bloke who says, give me the VIP treatment because I'm the president, because I'm the president of Canada. Now, it's true that some people on that day on the dock might be fooled. They might bow down in reverence. They might ask for an autograph. Some might say, right this way, sir, to the presidential suite that surely you deserve. Now you, on the other hand, standing on that dock, you are tempted to call the guy out because you've been to Miramichi, you've been to Minto, you've been to Majorville, you've been to Margaretville, which I just made up. You have spent a lot of time in Canada and you know that that is a term that we don't use up in this country. So here's Skeva. He's deceiving people in Ephesus and here's how. He seems to be referring to himself as a high priest, and that's the clue, folks. That's the giveaway. You see, there's a problem. There's only one high priest, and the high priest is always located in Jerusalem in the vicinity of the temple. So here's Skeva in a foreign country using a title that he has not earned, and he's a fraud, and somebody in this story calls him out. In this case, of course, it's a demon that calls him out, and whenever that happens, I'm guessing it's a public relations disaster. We never hear from Skeva again, but this episode raises a larger set of concerns for us, and I want to circle back to this for, for just a moment, just with a point or two in our conclusion. But, you know, what's up with all the evil spirit activity here in this story? You wonder if battle lines are being drawn here in Ephesus, the ancient equivalent of New York City. And it raises the question about what to do when our city's 
increasingly seem to be in the throes of darkness. How do we respond in practical terms and what do we do? We'll come back to that question for a moment later, but first let's finish off the chapter because after the public relations disaster of Skeva, there's an unintended effect in verse 17 and following, so listen to what happens. You see, when all of this, that is the video of Skeva and his sons running out of the house, bleeding, when all of this became known to the Jews and the Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. A number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. After all of this had happened, Paul then decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. After I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also. So he sent two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia while he stayed in the province of Asia a little while longer. Did you catch that just a second ago? That's a lot of sorcery that goes up in smoke to the tune of 50,000 drachmas. And I pulled out my calculator and I estimated that that was about 12 and a half million US dollars. But even more than the money, what's striking about this scene is that it prompts repentance among believers. Just as we read, remember, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they'd done. They'd become believers, but they also continued to practice sorcery. Now, on the one hand, this very public act of confession is a reminder to us about how easy it is for the idols of our surrounding culture to seep in. Remind me to talk about this, maybe even in the next couple of weeks or so. You see, it can be a lot easier to get out of Egypt than to get Egypt out of you. And I want to discuss that issue just a little bit more about confronting idolatries in our own lives down the road. But for now, on the other hand, here in the book of Acts, what we've seen is a pattern, a pattern. We've seen it in Samaria. We saw it on the island of Cyprus back in chapter 13. Whenever evil is confronted, whenever idolatries are abandoned, and whenever gospel hope is embraced, more often than not, there seems to be a, a pushback. In other words, whenever the gospel makes inroads into a city, forces of opposition arise. And in chapter 19, it's going to take place in a famous landmark within the city of Ephesus. So listen close, because here's how this part of the story unfolds in verse 23. You see, about that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. There was a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis and brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and you hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's a danger, a danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who's worshipped 
throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, when they heard this, they were furious, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Hey, let's just pause for one sec. Who is Artemis, or Diana the goddess, as some translations have it, and, and what do we need to know? As we mentioned earlier, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus was considered among the seven wonders of the ancient world, and it was a financial center for all of Roman Asia, and hence the worry of Demetrius, the silversmith. Historians tell us that this was a larger civil religion. In fact, the rhythm of city life revolved around the temple of Artemis, the temple of Diana, and the festivals that were associated with it. So to subvert the worship of Artemis the Great was to threaten the city's culture, its way of life, both economic and social, shaped by various routines and the calendar itself. In Greek religion, Artemis, and of course that's now Diana in Roman religion, is the hunting goddess and the champion of fertility. And so closely connected with the veneration of Artemis are things like food and pleasure. We probably don't have to think too hard to come up with contemporary equivalents, do we? In fact, Demetrius himself uses the term euphoria when he describes things. Euphoria, it means wealth, yes, but it also means well-being. It also involves pleasure-seeking. And on this score, of course, Demetrius is going to remind us of those slave owners in Philippi. Remember that story? When Paul casts a demon out of a poor slave girl who had a spirit by which she could predict the future, her owners are angry and they stir up a mob. <clears throat> Similarly, Demetrius is an instigator here and the gathering crowd is starting to get whipped into a frenzy. And make no mistake, folks, this isn't some sort of peaceful demonstration with kale salads and wheat germ shots. This is a crowd that, as we're about to see in verse 29 and following, are becoming increasingly dangerous and unstable. Listen close, verse 29 and following. You see, soon the whole city was in an uproar. The people seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia, and all of them rushed into the theater together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him, do not venture into the theater. The assembly itself was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know why they were there. The Jewish section of the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. He motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people, but when they realized he was Jewish and therefore would be opposed to idols and no friend to the goddess, they all shouted in unison for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Diana. But eventually, verse 35, a city official quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image which fell from heaven? Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down and not do anything rash. You've brought these men here, though they've neither robbed temples nor blasphemed our goddess. If, then, Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. 
they can press charges. If there's anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account for this commotion since there's no reason for it. And after he said this, he dismissed the assembly and this eventful chapter comes to a close. Speaking of which, let me come in for a landing with just a couple of closing remarks. And I appreciate you listening and taking this passage seriously, where we see a lot of dark and scary things. There's evil spirits and sorcery scrolls and a crowd that looks decidedly unhinged and capable of considerable menace. You know, a few years after this event in Acts chapter 19, Paul's going to write a letter. The letter will eventually be called Ephesians because he's writing it to the various believers who we indirectly meet in this very chapter. And he's going to provide them with some remarkable affirmations. In fact, early on, he's going to remind them that not so long ago, O oh, people of Ephesus, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, a spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, O people of Ephesus, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in uh, transgressions. It's by grace that you've been saved through faith. You didn't earn it. This is the gift of God, Paul tells them. But a lot of us know that this gift is fragile, isn't it? And there's malicious forces that would want to nullify that gift, and so it's no accident that Paul clearly tells the Ephesians other things later in the letter. In fact, he tells them that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. This is the guy that spent two years in the lecture hall of Tyrannus being reasonable, talking to people, listening to them, and yet he also tells the Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the authorities of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. You see, there's a spiritual battle, we're told. And we see it, just like Paul does in this episode in Acts 19, in the city of Ephesus, and likewise, you could see certain liniments of battle in our cities even today. And consequently, I think as we think about what's going on in our world right now, and as we read this passage, I think we can do three things in response, real quick as we draw to a close. Three things in response to the spiritual battle that we see in our cities today. First, we need to put on what Paul calls in this letter to the Ephesians, the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God so that we can take our stand against the schemes of the adversary. You know what you can do? You can memorize Ephesians 6, 14 to 18. You'll get the full inventory of equipment that we have at our disposal. And when you put on that full armor, you'll be dressed for success. Second, praise God as often as you can this week for the gift of salvation. You know, there's few things that scatter the arrows of the adversary more effectively than full-bodied praise to our risen Savior. So go for it this week, okay? Third, 
love people. Love them without any agenda, okay? Love those around you, at work, at school, wherever it is. Love them because God loved you first. And you know what? You might be surprised. In our cities, there's lots of folks who need the good news of a reconnection with God. They're tired, I think, of the pollution of idolatry and the darkness that gets way too much press. And you wonder how much just simple care and practical kind-heartedness, it can probably go a long way, can't it, in drawing them away from the maddening crowd toward a walk with God, toward a purpose, toward a real destiny. So wherever you are right now, why don't we just pause and why don't we pray about that? Because our Father, we admit before you today that we're in the midst of a difficult season. But we also claim the reality that your perfect love casts out our anxious fear. We believe that your light scatters all darkness and that your truth overrides any and every distortion that we hear. You've got a heart for our cities, so we would ask today that you give us wisdom and discernment to live and to share the message of good news in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.